0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams, and this is Episode 66, just like the Jedi Order. But instead of Order 66, this is Episode 66. It is Juliana versus the United States. Now, this is the Ninth Circuit case from just a week ago that dismissed the Climate Kids lawsuit, trying to force the government to do something about the impending destruction of the world. And like I said, it was just last week, January 17th, 2020. We are on top of these legal developments as they happen. We are all over this stuff. So the plaintiffs were seeking an order from the judiciary, in this case, Juliana versus the U.S. Ninth Circuit, mandating. They wanted the judiciary to mandate, to order the executive branch and Congress, for that matter, the legislative branch, to enact policy to curtail global warming. Dave, you might ask, what authority does the judicial branch have to order the executive to implement policy or the Congress to legislate policy? That would be a good question, and the answer is none. Thankfully, this three-judge panel, all nominated by Obama, by the way, got it right in a two-to-one decision. So, two-thirds of them got it right, and it's all you need. This two-to-one decision deals with a very important notion, one which Associate Justice, Colorado's own, Neil Gorsuch deals with in his book, A Republic If You Can Keep It, which we discussed last week in episode 65. Now, this notion is the idea that separation of powers is a fundamental and foundational principle of our entire form of government, and those roles that each of the three branches has is important And it is important for them to stay in that role, stay in their lane, so to speak. If we ignore this foundational notion—the separation of powers—the foundation of the government weakens, and everything it's supposed to do becomes less effective, and our liberties are at risk. Gorsuch makes the Jenga tower metaphor. You might be able to take out one block and the whole thing doesn't fall over. But every block you take out, the thing gets closer and closer to its eventual demise. What else happened? Also this week, the Supreme Court denied California's and other pro-Obamacare states denied their motion for an expedited schedule to hear the appeal of the Fifth Circuit's decision in Texas versus U.S. that upheld the federal district court judge's ruling that the individual mandate, Of the Affordable Care Act slash Obamacare is no longer constitutional because the reason it was constitutional in the first place, as the US Supreme Court held in NFIB versus Sibelius that the reason it was constitutional is because it was a tax. Now the tax is gone. The linchpin is removed. It's no longer constitutional. So the Fifth Circuit upheld that part of the district court's decision. We went over the district court's opinion in episode 17 and the circuit court's opinion just two weeks ago in episode 64. So we someone that one. The pro-Obamacare states wanted the U.S. Supreme Court to hear their appeal of the Fifth Circuit's decision. This term, hear the arguments now and have a decision out by summer before the election. That's very unusual. They keep these schedules for a reason. It takes extraordinary circumstances to change that. The U.S. Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to hear this any quicker. We're going to hear it if we hear it. We're going to hear it the following term, and the results of the decision will be out after." The November elections and into the summer of 21. Also this week, Tulsi Gabbard filed a defamation suit against Hillary Clinton for Clinton's comment about Gabbard being a Russian agent. And as you all know from our discussion of New York Times versus Sullivan in episode 47, that a public figure has a tough road to hoe in a defamation case. Gabbard will not only have to show Clinton intentionally made a false statement about her, but that she did it with quote unquote actual malice and that's tough to do. As always, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. For all the latest, whenever a new episode comes out, follow this podcast on social media. That's Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash Williams. I'd love to hear from you. Give me a rating. Give me a review. That would be awesome if you're so inclined and subscribe and share. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, having a beer. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with DK Williams via sponsorship. Now, I love doing these things. I learn a lot and I think this work is important. It does take me on average about eight hours to put one of these together. From reading the case, annotating it, outlining it, recording it, and editing it. So if you think this work is important also and want to become a sponsor, that'd be awesome. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com. And I'll be speaking at Liberty in the Rocks in a few weeks on Wednesday, February 5th. I'm going to talk about Silent Coup. You like that? I made that up. I didn't really make it up, but that's what I'm calling it. Silent Coup. How the feds have usurped the majority of its authority. Of course, we're going to mention Wickard versus Filburn, episode 5 of The Law. And others. Festivities start in the back room of Chopper Sports Grill in Denver at 6 o'clock, and the program starts at 7. Come on out. It's always a good time. Hope to see you there. Who are the participants? in this climate kids case? Well, the entire first page of this Ninth Circuit opinion lists all the plaintiffs, and then the list goes on to the second page. The first name, however, is Kelsey Cascadia Rose Juliana, and so since she's listed first, that's the name we use on the case: Juliana versus the United States. The list of defendants also, obviously, clearly starts with the United States, but then it's got the rest of page two and goes on to page three, roughly in just over a page total of the, all the defendants listed. So it's a lot of federal government officials, including President Trump, because he's president, including his acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney, with whom I went to law school want to drop that name. University of North Carolina law school class of 92. Haven't talked to him in probably 25 years. But at one point, I went to a NASCAR all-star race with Mick and about six other guys from law school. It was the Winston, that's the name of the race, at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And Michael Waltrip won the race. I remember that part. So the Ninth Circuit. Hill two to one in favor of dismissing the lawsuit, in favor of the government. Now, of course, the likes of the New York Times like to make a big deal out of the appointments of these federal judges when it suits them, like in the Obamacare case we mentioned, declaring the individual mandate unconstitutional for the mere reason its only constitutional underpinning has been removed. You know, some ridiculous partisan reason like that. New York Times likes to point that out when it advances their narrative that Republican judges, Trump judges are just doing policy stuff, regardless of the veracity of that. And Gorsuch talks about that in his book. So if you didn't listen last week, check it out. But New York Times and others like the policy of Obamacare. Therefore, They think it must be constitutional, regardless of its actual constitutional analysis of its legitimacy. But in this case, all three judges were appointed by Obama, and they, quote, ruled against climate change. So just imagine if one of these judges is ever eventually nominated for the Supreme Court. Are the progressive senators going to excoriate them for this? I wouldn't doubt it, but they shouldn't because they're very sympathetic to the climate change situation, but they acknowledge that they don't have any constitutional authority to do anything about it. And we'll get into those specifics and there's some good language in the case about that. So props to this two-judge majority, at least, for not attempting to make policy from the bench, even if they wish they had the power to do so. They acknowledged they did not. So who wrote the opinion? Judge Andrew Hurwitz. He was appointed by Obama to the Ninth Circuit in 2012. Prior to that, he was on the Arizona Supreme Court, and he's 72 years old now. He went to Princeton undergrad and Yale Law School. He was joined by Ninth Circuit Judge Mary Murguia. That's M-U-R-G-U-I-A. She's 59, appointed by Obama to the Circuit Court in 2011, Prior to that, she was a federal district court judge in Arizona, appointed by Clinton in 2000. She went to University of Kansas undergrad and stayed for law school. Y'all know I like it when federal judges are not all from elite Ivy League schools. That's where we need more diversity, especially on the U.S. Supreme Court, because all of them went to an elite Ivy League school. Let's diversify that thing. The dissenter was Judge Josephine Staten. Now, she's not actually on the circuit court. She's a federal district court judge sitting by what they call designation. That means for some reason, the Ninth Circuit needed a pinch hitter. They needed a judge to sit in on this case. And for some reason, they called her up from the district court to fill the role of the appellate judge in this case. Nevertheless, she was appointed by Obama in 2010 to the federal district court. Prior to that, she was a California state judge. She went to William Jewell College, about which I know nothing, and Harvard Law, which everybody's familiar with. She's 58. Now, She is exactly, in her dissent, demonstrates she's exactly one of the judges Gorsuch mentions who believes the judiciary should make policy. And we'll see how that worked out for her. And I mentioned the age uh, for these judges because they have lifetime tenure on the federal court. So how old they are is relevant to how long they might end up being on the bench. So the Ninth Circuit remanded this case to the district court because the district court was going to allow it to go to trial. The Ninth Circuit remanded it with instructions to dismiss it for lack of Article 3 standing. Now, the summary of the case, not the actual opinion, and they wrote, the panel, that's the two-to-one Court of Appeals panel, reluctantly concluded that the plaintiff's case must be made to the political branches or to the electorate at large. Reluctantly, interesting word, And and the circuit court does use that word in their opinion, but they were reluctant to do their jobs and enforce the Constitution, seems an unfortunate choice of words. Once again, however, this case gives me the opportunity to quote Justice John Marshall Harlan II, who said, and I hope you guys can say it along with me at this point, that Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. That certainly applies to the district courts and Court of Appeals as well. These plaintiffs and the dissenting judge and the district court judge who was going to allow it to go to trial want the federal courts to be just such a haven for what they perceive to be a blot upon the public welfare. They want the Constitution to be treated as such a panacea. Thankfully, in this case, it was not. Let's jump into the case. Quoting, The plaintiffs claim that the government has violated their constitutional rights, including a claimed right, under the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, to a, quote, climate system capable of sustaining human life. Okay. The majority is sympathetic to that argument and actually says we are on the eve of destruction. That's a bit melodramatic, isn't it, Dave? Yes, it is. But I kid you not, they quoted the song in the opening lines of The Opinion. And I quote, In the mid-1960s, a popular song warned that we were on the eve of destruction. The plaintiffs in this case have presented compelling evidence that climate change has brought that eve nearer. Now, I'm the type of guy who would quote a pop song in the judicial opinion, but this is a bit dramatic. Be skeptical when people talk about the end of the world, the eve of destruction. We're all going to die. Be skeptical of that. Fear is a great motivator for the expansion of government power. It always has been. As H.L. Minken said, another one of my favorites, The whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. So the predictions for the end of the world and the melted ice caps and New York City being swamped have never come true. These predictions have been made for decades. These deadlines have come and gone, and then they just set out another deadline of impending doom. Hobgoblins, anyone? And let's not forget the Lessons of the Silent Spring book by Rachel Carson. She ginned up environmental hysteria against pesticides, specifically DDT. It resulted in a complete ban of DDT, not moderate use, not more responsible use, a complete ban of it, which resulted in the explosive growth of mosquitoes in Africa and other third world areas that had previously used DDT to kill the mosquitoes and stop malaria. After the mosquitoes came back, the malaria came back, killed millions of people, mostly children. So perhaps a skeptical eye for these the end is nigh type predictions is warranted. Because you know what will happen if fossil fuels are banned, which is what the planets are asking for here, what their experts in this case said was necessary. What will happen if fossil fuels are banned? Millions of people will die. If the cost of heating, for example, goes up, if it doubles, rich liberals will just write a check for the extra cost. Now nah, heating going up, well, we're saving the earth. Old ladies, however, on a fixed budget, can't afford that. They will just get cold, or they might not even be able to afford their heat at all. Some will die as a result. That's just an obvious secondary consequence. There are far many more that aren't as obvious that will be very negative, that they are completely ignored when the doomsayers are predicting the end of the world. The little ladies don't matter when it's the end of the world there will be some sacrifices. And Elizabeth Warren, who apparently thinks she's running for a despot, said she would ban the construction of new houses. She would just ban it because they're not carbon neutral. What would that do? What would banning the construction of new houses do? It doesn't take a Nobel laureate in economics to know that banning the production of new things makes the price of the existing ones go up. The cost of housing would skyrocket. Again, rich white Harvard professors will be fine. Homeless, however, will not. And people will die because they cannot afford a place to live. So the condescending tone of these doomsayers, naysayers, end of the world types, including these judges, even the majority here, which dismisses the case, is entirely misplaced. This case is a great example of why judges don't have the authority to make policy under the Constitution. That's the left to the elected branches. And as bad as Congress might be, as bad as the president might be, at least they are subject to election and must answer to voters. These life-tenured judges do not. And if you notice, the doomsday language is always about a potential failure to change existing policy may hasten an environmental apocalypse. And that's the language in this case. The failure to change policy may hasten an environmental apocalypse. And it's not unusual for judicial opinions to had the conclusion in the introduction. And then from there, they, the bulk of the opinion explains how they got there. And the court does that here, they say, in the beginning of their opinion. Even assuming such a broad constitutional right exists, this right to a better climate, can an Article Three court, federal courts are Article Three courts, can a federal court provide the plaintiffs the redress they seek? which is an order requiring the government to develop a plan to phase out fossil fuel emissions, phase them out, and draw down excess atmospheric CO2. Reluctantly, here's that word that the court uses, we conclude that such relief is beyond our constitutional power. Rather, the plaintiff's impressive case for redress must be presented to the political branches of government. Well, props for these appointees for the correct application of the constitutional basics. The judiciary cannot order the other two branches of the government to implement a particular policy. The court goes on, the plaintiffs seek declaratory relief and an injunction ordering the government to implement a plan to phase out fossil fuel emissions and draw down the excess atmospheric carbon dioxide. They seek an order, now get this, from the judiciary to the executive to implement policy that the plaintiffs can't get the legislature to adopt. That's not how the government works. That's not how the Jenga blocks get stacked. The Ninth Circuit overturned the federal district court and they said, the district court denied the government's motion to dismiss, concluding that the plaintiffs had standing to sue, raised justiciable questions, and stated a claim for infringement of a Fifth Amendment due process right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life. Okay, That's crazy on several levels, not the least of which is the presumption the government has the power to provide any particular type of climate system the judiciary is going to order a certain climate i mean talk about hubris and this purported right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life that means that if the government isn't ordered to act by the judiciary the planet will not be able to sustain human life that's what they're alleging literally literally they say that if they don't win we are going to die hobgoblins, indeed. This speculative fear-mongering again shows up. The court says the temperatures may rise more than six degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Interestingly enough, think about this, may is a synonym for may not. I learned early on when I asked my mother for something in the future, like, hey, mom, can we go to the circus? And my mom said, maybe. I learned that that meant exactly the same thing as maybe not. The court goes on, the extreme heat is melting polar ice caps and may cause sea levels to rise 15 to 30 feet by the year 2100. Didn't that deadline already pass? I mean, if it did, no big deal. We'll just set it out further. That's how they do it. All of these assertions about this impending doom in any event are perfectly suited to a policy argument. They're not legal arguments. In a footnote, the plaintiffs list several things the government should stop doing, several things they want the court to order the executive branch to stop doing including, quote, the use of fossil fuels to power its own buildings and vehicles. The plaintiffs think they have a right, a Fifth Amendment right of due process, to an order declaring the federal government to stop using fossil fuels in its cars and buildings. That's quite interesting. Talk about creative constitutionalism. Legally, the plaintiffs have to have a concrete and particularized injury. The court says that among those, that they have, they have those, and those are among them, they're being forced to leave home because of water scarcity, that's one of them, and having to evacuate a coastal home multiple times because of flooding. So they have injury, the court finds, Ninth Circuit finds they do. They also need causation, and the Ninth Circuit says, the causal chain here is sufficiently established for the purposes of summary judgment. Now, summary judgment means there is a dispute as to material fact, as to that causation. It doesn't mean it's likely that the fact finder, a jury, would agree that there is an actual causation, but there's enough to let a jury hear the evidence. Ninth Circuit says that is true, that there is at least a genuine factual dispute as to whether those policies were a substantial factor in causing the plaintiff's injuries. So the government policies that they want to change, like letting the FBI have gas-powered cars. They're talking about the summary judgment standard which in rule 56 of the federal rules of procedure states the court shall grant summary judgment if the movement the party who wants summary judgment shows that there's no genuine dispute as to any material fact and the movement is entitled to judgment as a matter of law. Basically if everybody agrees on the facts you might be able to get summary judgment. If there's a dispute as to a fact that's for a jury to decide or a fact finder of some type and you can't rule summary judgment on that. You have to let the fact finder decide what the facts are. So, the Ninth Circuit says that there is a genuine factual dispute on the causation issue. So, the court finds the plaintiffs meet the first two requirements, but then the court says, the more difficult question is whether the plaintiffs' claimed injuries are redressable by an Article III court. So, can we do anything about it? Court goes on, their sole claim is that the government has deprived them of a substantive constitutional right to a climate system capable of sustaining human life and they seek remedial, declaratory, and injunctive relief. To establish Article III redressability, the Ninth Circuit says, and correctly, the plaintiffs must show that that the relief they seek is both substantially likely to redress their injuries and, two, within the district court's power to award. The crux of the plaintiff's requested remedy is an injunction requiring the government not only to cease permitting, authorizing, and subsidizing fossil fuel use, they want them to stop authorizing the use of fossil fuels. They want to ban the use of fossil fuels. The court goes on, but also to prepare a plan subject to judicial approval to draw down harmful emissions. There you go. They want the federal government to implement a plan that the judge has to watch over and monitor and approve of. They want the judiciary to oversee legislative and executive duties, implement that policy, and direct those branches on what to do to further the implementation of the policies the judiciary says they must implement. That's not how it works, folks. And props to the Ninth Circuit, the two-judge majority, anyway, for admitting that and then getting that right, because that's not how it works. And Gorsuch, his book explains this well. I mean, he does a good job of a lot of examples and he's eloquent about it. And so does Justice Harlan, as we quoted earlier. Judiciary is not supposed to make policy. Ninth Circuit goes on and that commitment by the federal government, another expert emphasizes, must include everything from energy-efficient lighting, so they want the judiciary to make sure that the light bulbs used in federal buildings aren't too inefficient. Also includes improved public transportation and hydrogen-powered aircraft. That was in their evidence. That is what one of their experts say the government's going to have to do. Went to the ultimate resource, Wikipedia, about hydrogen-powered aircraft. And This is just science fiction stuff. According to a study at Penn State in 2006, Large commercial aircraft could be built by 2020, but will probably not enter service until closer to 2040. So, that's large commercial aircraft that are hydrogen powered. They could be built by 2020. Well, those greens are really bad at predictions, aren't they? And the plaintiffs here think a court should order the production of something that doesn't exist yet, like hydrogen-powered aircraft for everyone, for every airline. If you're going to fly, it's got to be on a hydrogen-powered aircraft. They think a court order to do something that's not doable, it's going to make a difference. The thing doesn't exist yet, not to that extent. Ordering it to exist will not change its non-existence. And plaintiffs want the judiciary to oversee the implementation of this policy and the production of these aircraft. This case shows why the judiciary does not have this type of power. Court goes on. We are therefore skeptical, thank goodness, that the first redressability prong is satisfied. But even assuming that it is, the plaintiffs do not surmount the remaining hurdle, establishing that the specific relief they seek is within the power of an Article III court. So what they want the court to do isn't within the power of the federal judiciary. The federal judiciary cannot order all government buildings to be lit a certain way and then monitor the changing of all the light bulbs. Court goes on. There's much to recommend the adoption of a comprehensive scheme to decrease fossil fuel emissions and combat climate change, both as a policy matter in general and a matter of national survival in particular. Again, we're all going to die if we don't do something. That's a policy statement. It's a policy argument. It's not a legal statement. It's not a legal argument. certainly not a constitutional statement or a constitutional argument. The court does come to the correct conclusion. Now, remember, they're Obama appointees, so good for them. But imagine, like I said, if either judge is ever nominated to the Supreme Court, are the senators going to demonstrate their ignorance as they always do about how the separation of powers works like they do in every modern Supreme Court confirmation? They don't ever ask about what was the judicial reasoning behind this case. It's just, oh, you ruled in favor of a corporation. And that's their criticism. Gorsuch talks about that as well. And how judges will often have to make a ruling that they don't agree with as policy, but they agree with it as a matter of what the law requires. If you want to change the law, go take it to the legislature. Don't take it to the judge. But people do, and that's the problem. Ninth Circuit says, It is beyond the power of an Article III court to order, design, supervise, or implement the plaintiff's requested remedial plan. As the opinions of their experts make plain, any effective plan would necessarily require a host of complex policy decisions entrusted, for better or worse, to the wisdom and discretion of the executive and legislative branches. These decisions range, for example, from determining how much to invest in public transit to how quickly to transition to renewable energy and plainly require consideration of competing social political and economic forces which must be made by the people's elected representatives rather than by federal judges. No props to them for that. and the court goes on. Even under such a scenario, the plaintiff's request for a remedial plan would subsequently require the judiciary to pass judgment on the sufficiency of the government's response to the order, which necessarily would entail a broad range of policy making and inevitably this kind of plan will demand action not only by the executive but also by Congress. So they're saying, hey, the judiciary can't tell the executive and the legislative branch what to do. That defeats the entire point of our entire system of government. Ninth Circuit then quotes a 1948 Supreme Court case. We cannot substitute our own assessment for the executive's or legislature's predictive judgments on such matters, all of which are delicate, complex, and involve large elements of prophecy, like predictions. What's going to happen? How do we best handle these predictions? Then the Ninth Circuit gets into the Supreme Court's Rucho the Common Cause decision, and as you guys will remember, that's the gerrymandering case from just last year, 2019, which we covered in episode 40, because Rucho discusses this redressability concept. Remember, we cover it all here. In Rucho, the Supreme Court discussed the political questions beyond the reach of Article III courts, and that was the gerrymandering thing. They said states can address gerrymandering problems, but Article III federal courts cannot. In the Rucho decision, the Supreme Court said, absent these standards— standards that the judiciary can apply. Federal judicial power would be unlimited in scope and duration and would inject the unelected and politically unaccountable branch of the federal government into assuming such an extraordinary and unprecedented role. In the context of Article 3 standing, federal courts must respect their proper and properly limited role in a democratic society. So the Ninth Circuit is nailing all the law correctly. So good for them. The majority is anyway. Court goes on, and I tweeted this out, so you'll sometimes get little previews of what's going to be in these podcasts. As Judge Cardozo, that's Benjamin Cardozo, once aptly warned, a judicial commission does not confer the power of a knight-errant roaming at will in pursuit of his own ideal of beauty or of goodness. That's a great quote. Ninth Circuit says, some questions, even those existential in nature, are the province of the political branches. Let's just briefly think about if they came out the other way. So if it's existential in nature, we don't have to worry about the separation of powers. Isn't our national debt an existential issue? So shouldn't the federal courts be able to order Congress to balance the budget, right? If it's an existential issue and that's the standard for judicial involvement in ordering the other two branches to do something, they should be able to do that. And what about the drug war? A lot of people think that's an existential issue. What about wars in general? Should the judiciary be able to tell the legislature when to engage in war and when to stop it? Hey, that's, you can't get much more existential than a war. Well, so you see how ridiculous the notion is that just because it's an existential crisis, then the judiciary has authority. It's nonsense. Not every problem, the Ninth Circuit says, posing a threat, even a clear and present danger. I'm not sure if they're quoting Tom Clancy there on purpose or not. Every problem posing a threat, even a clear and present danger to the American experiment can be solved by federal judges. Not every problem. We reluctantly conclude, they say reluctantly again, that the plaintiff's case must be made to the political branches or to the electorate at large, the latter of which can change the composition of the political branches through the ballot box, that the other branches may have abdicated their responsibility to remediate the problem does not confer on Article Three courts, no matter how well-intentioned, the ability to step into their shoes." Absolutely. So good for them on that. And where does that take us? It takes us full circle back to Justice Harlan II, when he said, there is a current mistaken view of the constitution that every major social ill in this country can find its cure in some constitutional principle. And this court, he's talking about the U S Supreme court, but it applies to any of them. And that court should take the lead in promoting reform when the other branches of government fail to act. That is a mistaken view. So Harlan was correct there, and so were the two judge majority in this Ninth Circuit opinion. The dissent goes on for pages and pages. I'll just mention it briefly. In essence, she is saying that the existential nature, as she sees it and as plaintiff sees it, of this problem gives them authority to do something about it. Basically, if we don't do something, we're all going to die. Well, that's just for the sake of argument, say that's true. Judge should write her congressman about that because the congressman has the power to do something about it where she does not. She does not have the power to order the Congress or the executive to address this particular hobgoblin. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 66, Julian versus The United States, where the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed the climate kid's attempt to have the judiciary usurp the legislative and executive branches power and order the implementation of policy the plaintiffs failed to get passed through the political process we're brought to you in collaboration with speakeasy ideas and let me know what you think twitter at the law dkw and on facebook.com slash the law with dk williams Do all that social media liking and stuff. It always helps. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching media appearances, and having a beer. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. And as always, my friends, until next week, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.